invitation here. And we pray that you would speak powerfully to us as a church family. That you would shift our church family and grow and develop and mature our church family in observing what Christ commanded. We pray that even as individuals, we would be sensitive to not break even the least of your commands. But that we would do your commands and teach others to do the same. As we look forward to entering finally into the final kingdom of heaven. Father, we need your help today. I need your help to preach. I need your help to meditate and speak clearly and truly and joyfully. And we need your help to tremble at your word together under the weight of your word. Father, there's a lot of different things in our lives going on, a lot of distractions, a lot of worldly concerns that can choke out our word, the word that you're going to give us. So So unite our hearts to fear your name. We pray for a powerful, reckless, and peaceful resignation to you. A powerful, reckless, peaceful resignation to your will. A powerful, reckless, and peaceful resignation to your kingdom. So come now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you are familiar with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is the Great Commission, and it's the great call for Christians. The great call of the Christian life is to go and disciple all nations. Disciple all ethnic people groups in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded. You know, sermons are a powerful thing. It doesn't always seem powerful because you hear it every week and you just go from one sermon to the next. But um, they all have a way of feeding you just like a meal is a powerful thing in your life. A meal keeps you alive. Then you eat your next meal and your next meal. It seems like not a big deal, but it keeps you going. And it keeps you from starving and dying. And so, so do sermons. They feed you and they keep you going. At the same time, there are some sermons and some meetings and some Sundays where God shifts our lives drastically and dramatically. And it doesn't even, you don't even, I mean, again, we're not against live gathering, obviously this is the church gathering, but it doesn't even, it could even be an audio recording of a sermon. In 2001, I was 20 years old and I was in Israel. John Piper came to, to the master's college. The one semester he comes to the master's college, I'm halfway across the world in Israel with 40 other master's college students. But there he is preaching. We listened to the message almost right after he preached it. On the bus as we're traveling through Israel. And it was powerfully gripping. He had called us to choose to suffer. Not just trust the Lord when you're suffering and you kind of fall into suffering. But actually choose the hard path of suffering because Christ rose from the dead. And God sowed in my heart a trust That was saying, Lord, yeah, help me to choose to suffer when you call me to. And to not turn away from it because it's going to be hard. Even when I was 12 years old, at a church gathering like this on a Sunday at Christian Fellowship Bible Church in West Covina. Our pastor preached a sermon. I don't even remember the sermon, but he gave an altar call after to ask if anyone um, is sensing that God's calling them to pastoral ministry. And for whatever reason, at 12 years old, a subjective sense of a grip... That God was calling me to be a pastor. Like, oh Lord, I don't want to be a pastor. You guys have heard me say this before, right? Like, I don't want to be a pastor. I, I love you, but I don't want to be a pastor. I want to be a deacon like my dad. I want to be a rich deacon. Because I thought my dad was rich. Middle class is rich. Especially when your pastor is poor. And that's the only pastor I've ever known in my life at that point. So I don't want to be like that. I want to be sold out for Jesus and rich. Or at least middle class. But the Lord sowed something in my heart that Sunday that changed me. And and you have situations like that in your life. And this Sunday might be one of those Sundays. And if not, maybe another seed just planted for a future Sunday or future sermon that will bear fruit in your life. But let's look at the task here in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the task is go therefore in verse 19, go therefore and disciple all nations, baptizing them. And then verse 20, teaching them. So if you're going to disciple all Nations, there's a few activities. You need to go and disciple. The main task is discipling. 
That means bringing people to learn about and love and trust Jesus. That includes conversion, but it goes beyond conversion. Discipling is is moving people towards Jesus, influencing people towards Jesus. Obviously, they have to hit a point of conversion where they repent from their sins and trust in Jesus and then keep on discipling them to obey everything Christ commanded. But discipling is the task. So if you're going to obey the Great Commission, you need to be discipling other people. Not just those younger than you in the faith, even those older than you in faith. Not just those who are less mature than you spiritually, even those who are more more mature than you spiritually. You need to be discipling people. Influencing them towards Jesus. That means you go to them. You can't just disciple them with your life, though it includes your whole life. It also includes your words. And so you need to speak of Jesus. And so we call that gospelizing. So I have four, four, four tasks for doing the Great Commission. Discipling. Gospelizing. And then if you're going to gospelize them, you need to baptize them, it says here. If you're discipling them, you need to baptize them. Which means you need a church. Because the church is going to affirm them and baptize them. So you need to establish a church. If you're going to be part of doing the Great Commission, you disciple, you gospelize, you stabilize, you establish and stabilize a church. And then lastly, it says after that, you're, so you're baptizing them and then you're teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded. So you're, you're doing that in the church context, right? So you're, you're gospelizing non-Christians and Christians. You're discipling non-Christians and Christians. Some of them become Christian. So you keep baptizing them. And, or you, you baptize them once, but you keep baptizing those who keep coming in. You keep teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded. And if you're going to teach them to obey everything Christ commanded, that means you need to teach them to disciple others too, right? And when you do that, you gotta, you're obeying this great commission. And it says, go, ter- go therefore and disciple who? All nations. And so you realize that your local church is not enough. You can't disciple all nations from Bellflower or Los Angeles. You can't do it. So how do you disciple all nations? Does that mean we just keep traveling everywhere? Maybe for some. But it typically means that your church and you are cooperating with other churches to work together to disciple all nations. So the last word is cooperation. If you're going to do the Great Commission, you need to disciple, you need to gospelize, you need to establish a local church and be part of that church and keep bringing stability to that church. And then as a discipler, gospelizer, church member, working with other churches, you cooperate together to send some of your own and some of their own to the mission field. To disciple all nations. That's what we did. We sent last year or two years ago now. I'm going to use the Russian version of the name. Ivan. We sent Ivan. And. Latasha. Natasha. <laughs> Latasha. To Central Asia. We sent Ivan and Latasha to Central Asia. But we didn't just do it ourselves. We can't afford that. Do you know how much it costs. To send them overseas. It costs a lot of money, and we don't have that kind of money as a church. It would, it would take our whole budget just, to, just for that one family. So, so what do you do? You work with 48,000 other churches called the Southern Baptist Convention, and you all give money to this big pot, and together as a convention of churches, we can send Ivan and Latasha to Central Asia as a small church. That's cooperation. We're part of the Creek Collective. Peter prayed for the Creek Collective. We work together to plant gospel-driven churches in ethnic minority distressed and neglected communities. Can't do that on our own. Sam No, one of our former interns, is getting supported $40,000 a year from the Creek Collective. $40,000 a year. Indefinitely. Until the church gets established. We can't afford that from our church budget. But we can cooperate with the Creek Collective and do it together. So... If you're going to be part of the Great Commission, disciple, gospelize, establish and stabilize your local church, and then cooperate with other churches to disciple all nations. And when we talk about all nations, Tanner talked about this last week with from Romans 15, but we're talking about discipling all ethnic people groups. Not nations. There's 195 nation states in our, in our world today. And so one Southern Baptist pastor 
uh, wrongly boasted or inaccurately boasted in one sense. We have fulfilled the Great Commission with our church because we have sent from our local church missionaries and mission teams to every single nation on the earth. And I want to say at first, I want to say praise God that you sent mission teams to every nation state on the earth. But that is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is disciple all nations. And there were no nation states back then. It's people from every tribe, language, people, or people from every yeah, tribe, language, people, and nation. And nation there is not the nation state. So in other words, you can have a nation like America, the United States of America, and have 500 people groups that live in America. In India, the nation of India, there are over 2,000 unreached people groups still along with the rich people groups in India. So when we talk about nations, we're not talking about the nation of India, we're talking about the 2,000 plus tribes and language groups, ethnic people groups in that nation. So praise God for that local church that sent 196 teams at that time. I mean, nation states, even the number changes as people get colonized and nations collapse and form. But I think it was like 196 or 198 nations at the time where he, his church sent to every nation. Praise God for that, but that's not the Great Commission. It's part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to every ethnic people group. And you know what? This is what Paul is about. Tanner preached that last week. Listen to the sermon from last week from Romans 15. Paul said, I, I fulfilled the gospel in this region. That's, he could say that in L.A. The gospel is fulfilled in L.A., so I'm going to go elsewhere. What did he mean by that? He meant that there are enough church, there are churches here that speak the, the majority language and they can share the gospel here and keep planting and discipling here in Los Angeles. But he says, I'm going to a place, so geography, where Christ has not yet been named. Paul had a burden to go to where Christ has not yet been named because the Great Commission is not just about your locality or your, your location, your, lo your local neighborhood. It's about all nations. It's global. And so we have the Great Commission, which is paired right now, at least in America, with the Great Imbalance. Some have called this the Great Imbalance. Have you heard of the Great Imbalance? If you're here on Wednesday praying with us, a lot of you were here on Wednesday praying with us. Thank you for being here on Wednesday praying with us. We talked about the Great Imbalance. What is the Great Imbalance? The Great Imbalance is that of all the money given to churches, less than 1% of the money goes to unreached people groups. It goes to their own churches, which is, again, fine. You need to stabilize it to cooperate. And it goes to missionaries. It goes to missions where Christ has already been named. And not that we don't need more churches there. That's not bad use of money. But less than 1% is going to the unengaged, unreached people groups. That's an imbalance. Not just for one church. That's an imbalance for American churches. And then the, the second part of the great imbalance is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin of the great imbalance is that out of every hundred missionaries that go, leave this country to go to the mission field, only three go to unreached places. 97% of our missionaries go to places that are already reached with the gospel. And there needs to be work there. We need to send people there. But that's an imbalance. And the great commission is to go and disciple all ethnic people groups. So here's a lie. One lie here. I'm going to give you guys a bunch of lies and truths about missions. One lie here for you uh, against living missionally or for the Great Commission is you can do the Great Commission simply by being faithful locally and only focusing locally. That's a lie. The truth is you must do the Great Commission by being faithful locally while being burdened and connected to what we're called to do globally. You have to be burdened and connected to what is going on globally if you're going to be faithful to this great commission. So there's the call, go and disciple. Some of you need to cross a geographical and cultural and linguistic barrier. Some of our members here, some of our children need to go and do that with their lives. Some of you need to send others out while establishing and deepening the base in this church and other churches stateside. And we're going to call at the end of the sermon, some of you to stand up here and, um, and, and come here on the platform, and we're going to pray for some here. I'm praying that all of us will hear the call from the Lord and be given the gift of repentance from negli sinful negligence in the Great Commission. And that we'd be given fresh faith to go, but we're going to call some who sense a call from the Lord 
to seriously explore going to the, to the mission field to come up here and we're going to pray for you guys at the end. All right. So I'm calling this, calling this message Missions in Matthew. And I have six reasons why you need to go and disciple others. Okay? You guys ready? Six reasons why you need to go and disciple all ethnic people groups, locally and globally. Reason number one, because Jesus made you his disciple for this call. Because Jesus made you a disciple for this call. The lie is Jesus saved you to be happy in this world and be happy with this, with this world's gifts. That's a lie. Matthew 20, 19 tells us, go therefore and disciple all nations. He made you and saved you to disciple others. The truth is, Jesus saved you to go and disciple all ethnic people groups. Another lie you might believe is, PJ, I'm not good at discipling. That's a lie. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. You're just not good at discipling towards Jesus if he's not your master. You inevitably and naturally and enthusiastically disciple people towards what you value the most. So if you value comfort the most, then you'll disciple people towards comfort. If you disciple money the most, you'll disciple people towards valuing money. If you, disciple, if you, if you value family the most, you'll disciple people towards loving their family. You're good at discipling. You are. You're good at it. So the truth is you're already discipling people towards your highest value, toward your true master, towards your Lord, and towards your treasure. Question. Why are you still here? And what I mean by that is, why are you still here on planet Earth? Why are you not dead yet? Why have you not died? What is the reason? What is the purpose why you're still breathing? I mean, God could have, could have taken your life by now, right? He appointed for man to die once, right? God has an appointment day when you're going to die. That day is not yet. Well, maybe today. But it hasn't been yet as far as yesterday and before that. Why? Why not? What is the purpose God has for you still on this earth. I'm telling you what it is. To go and disciple all ethnic people groups. That's why you're not dead. Let's go to reason number two. So reason number one, because Jesus made you a disciple for this call. Reason number two, because Jesus came and died and rose to save his people. If that's too long to say, because Jesus died to save his people from all peoples, from all ethnic people groups. Let's look at Matthew. We're going to flip around Matthew, so have your fingers ready. Matthew 1.21. Here's a Christmas story. We'll, we'll start talking about Advent next week and a Christmas message the following week. But here's a little bit now. Jesus' birth, Joseph is given instructions from an angel, and uh, the angel tells Joseph in a dream to take Mary as his wife, that she, is not, she has not cheated on Joseph. She has conceived miraculously. She's still a virgin. She is conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving life and conception to the Virgin Mary. And then in verse 21, this is what we want to pick up. She will give birth to a son, the angel says, and you are to name him what? Jesus, which means, that's Yeshua. Yeshua means saves. Yah is short for Yahweh, Yeshua. You will call him Jesus, Yeshua, because he will what? Save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. And you say, oh, save his people. It doesn't say peoples, it says people. And who are his people? The who? The Jews, right? The nation of Israel. That's what you should think at first, because that's true. Jesus is a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's an Israelite. And he came to save his people from their sins. But then as you read on in Matthew, you get to Matthew chapter 9. Okay, you get to Matthew 9, and you have the centurion who's Roman and not a Jew. He comes and calls for Jesus to heal his 
servant in Matthew chapter 9, or I'm sorry, Matthew 8, I think. Sorry, Matthew 8, verse 9. Matthew 8, verse 9, the centurion says, Lord, he sends a messenger, Lord, don't come under my roof. I don't need you to come. It says in Matthew 8, 9, for I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this and he does it. In other words, they follow my authority. They submit to my authority. And so Jesus, you don't need to come over to heal this man. You have authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. What's Jesus' response in verse 10 to this Gentile? Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a what? Faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in his authority. I tell you that many will come from east and west, the Gentiles, the nations. Many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the what? In the kingdom of heaven. They're going to feast with the patriarchs. In the kingdom. They're going to have a place at the table. The great feast at the end. But the sons of the kingdom, the Israelites, the Jews, will be what? Thrown out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. As you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Now, we could just meditate on the authority and power and love of Jesus, but we need to move on to the specific point here that Jesus is saying there's a place at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. There's a place for whom? People from the east and from the west. Gentiles. So when Jesus came to save his people from their sins, it's not just the Jews. It includes Gentiles. And we know that from Matthew 1.1 because Matthew 1.1 says... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what was promised to Abraham? One of, our, one of our most valuable members came up and read Genesis 12. Right? One through three here. And what did she read? The, the promise to Abraham that in your offspring, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Saved too, but blessed is the word. Blessed. Why? Because the whole world in their sin is what? What's the opposite of blessed? Cursed. So when he said, blessed, is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, the humble. Blessed are those who hunger in their directions. We're talking about this Abrahamic blessing for people who deserve to be cursed to hell forever. And this blessing is going to come to all the families of the earth. All the ethnic people groups. All the tribes. All the languages of the earth. This Abrahamic blessing through the son of Abraham. Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins. And how does he save his people from their sins? Go to Matthew 27, 46. Matthew 27, 46. How does he come to save his people from their sins? Here he is on the cross. Hanging there from about 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And from, the, from 3 Oh yeah, so then from 12 to 3, he's hanging in darkness. So he's hanging about six hours. Right at the end of his hanging on the cross, it's dark for three hours. And at the end of this third hour of darkness, three in the afternoon, it says in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Hanging in darkness, abandoned by God. Why? Because his name is Jesus, and he would come to save his people from their sins. How? By bearing the judgment of sins they deserve on himself. So, why does God abandon the Son and judge him in darkness? Not because of his sins. Jesus never sinned before. God the Son became a man and lived on his life and never sinned before. But he died on the cross for the sins of his people. If you're not a Christian, this is the good news of Christianity. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be free of your guilt. Yes, you are guilty, but you can be free from that. You can be free from your shame because Christ took our shame on the cross. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that we're all sinners before a holy God who created us and we're accountable to him. 
And we deserve his judgment. We deserve to be thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's called hell. And burn in the lake of fire forever for our sins. But Christ took that punishment, that eternal, unfathomable judgment on himself on that cross, abandoned by the Father, abandoned by God, so that you would never be abandoned by God, so that you can be forgiven and be made part of his people, so that you can have a place at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and feast and live happily ever after with God in his reign on a new earth forever. God is saying you're, you're invited. You can come now. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. He's the only one who lived for you. He's the only one who died for you. He's the only one who was raised from the dead for you, for your forgiveness, if you would come to him and repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Now, when it says Jesus came to save his people from their sins, he came by dying. And whose sins did he pay for? I said his people. But what people? Revelation 5.9 says, you are worthy to take the scroll, Jesus, and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for yourself. You purchased people for God by your blood, by your death, from every tribe and language and people and nation. When Christ hung in darkness, Matthew 27.46, and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, God, the, God forsook Jesus, God abandoned Jesus for people. Because he was taking the place of people from every tribe and people and language and nation. Jesus died for people from every ethnic people group. Not every one of every ethnic people group. He died for everyone to give the offer, but he paid the price, bore the wrath for some people from every ethnic people group. And so in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, when he says, this is the, the, he holds up the cup in the Lord's Supper and says, this is my blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 26 through 28. What is he talking about? He's talking about the covenant that he would make by dying on the cross for sins to redeem Israel and to be the true Israel and call other people to him from other nations, other ethnic people groups who would unite themselves to Christ and be part of that permanent covenant people, the new covenant people, the new covenant Israel. And that's from every tribe people and language. So why should you go? Why should you devote your life to discipling all ethnic people groups? Because Jesus died for some people from all ethnic people groups. That's reason number two. Reason number three. Why should you go and disciple all ethnic, all ethnic people groups? Because Jesus calls you to suffer and die for him with the promise of life and reward. He calls you to suffer and die for him. Here's the lie. Here's the lie that some of us believe, some of you believe. I need to live for my family and my job. I need to live for my health and my safety and the safety and health of those I love. That's what I live for. Jesus saved me to empower me to take care of my family or my work. <clears throat> and that's a lie. Jesus did not save you. To take care of your family and your job and your health and your safety. He did not save you for that. Matthew 16. Let's go to Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life by not taking up his cross, by not denying himself, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life by taking up his cross because of me will find his life. Or what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? And what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus saved you to take up your cross and follow him. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. The one who loves a father or a mother, and I love my father and mother, the one who loves a father or, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
You love your mom and dad more than Jesus? You're not worthy of Jesus. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you get to define your own cross? Do you get to follow the Jesus of your own definition? If you want to do that, you're not worthy of the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of history. The Jesus who came down and lived and died and rose and ascended and reigns. Verse 39. Anyone who finds his life will what? Lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. There's the reward. First the cost, then the reward. The cross, then the crown. And so Jim Elliot said in the similar sentiment, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're a fool if you do it the other way. You're a fool if you keep holding on to life, holding on to mom and dad and your comfort and your, your ambitions and your plans and your job and your ambition, your, your direction. You hold on to that? You're a fool. Because you know what? All of that is going away. All of it. You're going to lose it all. And so what I quoted to you earlier from Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus is saying you're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're going to get insulted if you follow Jesus. You're going to get persecuted if you follow Jesus. You're going to have people say evil things about you because you're following Jesus. Not just outside the church, even inside the church. Because we're sinners inside the church. Matthew 19, go to Matthew 19, 27 and 29. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I preached this whole... So if you want to understand this passage in context, you could go to a sermon a few weeks ago. But I just want to pull out here. Matthew 19. Here's Peter. And Peter gave up everything to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 27. Peter responded, See, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? There it is. We, we've left everything to follow you. You call us to suffer and die. We've left everything for you. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, here's the reward... When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, now this is for all of you, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. There's a reward. But there's a cost. Leaving all for Jesus. Did Peter leave all for Jesus? We know as you follow the story in Matthew that he ends up denying Jesus, but that's not the end of his story, right? Praise God, that's not the end of his story. But Peter in Acts chapter 5, 27 through 32, they tell Peter, stop preaching about Jesus. You're filling Jerusalem with your teaching about Jesus. Stop it. Or we're going to kill you. They threaten him. They intimidate him. They oppose him. They insult him. They falsely say every kind of evil against him because of Jesus. And Peter responds by saying, we must obey God rather than man, rather than people. Peter said, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they figure out what to do. In Acts 5, they call Peter and John back in and they flog them with whips till their, black, their backs were raw. Blood, flesh, scars, swelling, 
infection, laid them out, chained them, whipped them. For Jesus. And Jesus says, you're what? You're blessed. And you know what they said? As we read on in Acts 5.41, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, so they released them, and they said, don't speak in Jesus' name anymore. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple, in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Did they stop preaching? Did they stop discipling? Did they stop going? No, they kept going. Not only that, the pain didn't hinder them. It encouraged them. It made them go harder. Persecution wasn't a hindrance. It was a help. Danger. Threats. A help. I already quoted Jim Elliott. Do you guys know the story of Jim Elliott? Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott. In 1952, Jim Elliott was a student at Wheaton College. Majored in Greek, graduated in 1949. In 1952, he took his wife. I'm not sure if he took his wife there. Eventually, he did, but like he went there in 1952 with five other, four other brothers in Christ: Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming. They go to Ecuador to the jungles, to the to the Alca or Akua. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Akua um, people group there to make contact. They went to the jungle. The Kua people were known for killing visitors. They didn't want visitors. So what this group did was, Nate Saint was the pilot, they would come and fly over a few times every week and drop gifts to make peace and just to let them know, hey, we're friendly. So they do that for, for a, a period of time because the Kua's had no contact with the outside world. Eventually they feel comfortable to make contact. They land their plane and make contact. They meet with them several times. Women came out the first time, then a young man, then others. For several days, they said things were going well. They'd leave, come back, make contact. They gained the confidence and friendship of the Akuas. And they said, I think we're going to be able to gospelize them soon. So they're moving towards gospelizing. That's the mission, to disciple all ethnic people groups, to disciple the Akua ethnic people group. They're part of the all, right? So they're, they're making contact. And so now it's 1956. And eventually, a horde came out. A horde of men came out with eight-foot spears. And plunged it through each of these five men. Killing them. And these men, these five men, these five missionaries, had guns. And they didn't use them. What about self-defense? Self-defense is biblical, right? Safety. I'm a dad. I mean, Jim Elliott had, had a one-year-old. He had a one-year-old. I'm a dad. i got to protect myself for her, right? That's what Jesus wants me to do, right? January 8, 1956. They were killed. Several of the men who killed them became Christians later in life. One of them gave a testimony at a meeting, a public meeting, and said, I've killed 12 people with my spear. But I did that when my heart was black. Now Jesus' blood has washed me clean, so I don't live like that anymore. Go disciple the Akua people group, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded. Jim Elliot wrote, The will of God is always bigger, is, is always a bigger thing than we bargain for. But we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you believe that? Matthew teaches that. Jesus teaches that. The truth is you need to live, so the lie is that, let me go back to the lie again, the lie is I need to live for my family and my job and my health and my safety. Jesus saved me to take care of my family and my work. 
and our health. The truth is, you need to live for Jesus. And your family and your job are only part of you living for Jesus. And they are not excuses from following Jesus. But they are aspects and elements for the great call and need you have of living for Jesus. You are not saved to take care of your family. You are saved to disciple your family and disciple others along with your family. So pour out your life for Jesus and enjoy more of him in your life. Live for Jesus. Die for Jesus. John Patton, another missionary, said this. As I had only once to die, I was content to leave the time and place and means in the hand of God. They're telling John Patton, don't go to the don't go don't go to that mission field. They're going to eat you. They're cannibals. They eat them. And he says, well, when I die, where I die, how I die, that's in God's hands, not mine. And Paul taught us that too, right? God appoints the times and places where we're going to live. That's not up to you to figure out how you're going to die. It's up to God. It's up to you to pour out your life for God. But listen to this quote by Jim Elliot. When the time comes to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Don't leave anything on the table. God has work for you to do. When it's time for you to die, make sure that all you have left to do is die. You did it. Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared you, his, um, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. You have discipling work to do. Do it, then die. Are you still choosing Jesus today as a Christian, as when you first became a Christian? Are you still taking up your cross? Are you still denying yourself? If you weren't a Christian, would you become a Christian hearing this? Now, I'm asking you Christians. If you weren't a Christian and you're hearing this, would you now become a Christian? Jesus told us to count the cost, right? Would you still become a Christian today knowing that the call is to die for Jesus? Would you trust his promise of reward? That you will receive a hundred times more and inherit eternal life. All right, that's number, reason number three, why you need to go. Because Jesus calls you to suffer and die for him with the promise of life and reward. Let's go to number four. Because Jesus made you his light. Jesus made you his light. Here's the lie. Life, my life doesn't shine for Jesus. Other Christians in our church, their lives shine for Jesus. So they should be the ones who go and disciple all ethnic people groups. But my life, PJ... My Christian life, my life doesn't shine for Jesus. I struggle with all kinds of sin. My life doesn't shine for Jesus. That's a lie. What's the truth? Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand so that it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What does Jesus tell you in verse 14? You are the what? Light. light of the world. So shine with your good works. Your discipling works. We know Jesus, John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And we're the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. And so by your very presence, you are light. So Ivan and Latasha in Central Asia. Just their very presence. They live up a hill, and right down the hill is a mosque. And Ivan goes there every Friday when they meet to share Jesus with Muslim men. Not knowing whether one of them might catch him on the wrong day, in the wrong mood, which can endanger him and his family. But his very presence is light. I mean, even we were there... See neighbors, and the neighbors know them. Their, their presence there is light. They create questions just by their very presence. The lie is, my life doesn't shine for Jesus. Other Christians who do shine should be the ones discipling. That's a lie. The truth is, if you are in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're not called to be light. 
You hear me? The command is not to be light. What does it say? It's not a command. It's a, it's a statement. You are the what? You are the light of the world. Jesus is not telling you to be light. He's saying you're already light. You're not called to be light. You're called simply to shine the light that he has already made you. So don't fix yourself to shine. If you're a Christian, the light's already shining. It's already shining. Just be who you are and disciple people. If you're a Christian, you're ready. And you're called. That's number four. Number five. Reason number five. Why should you go and disciple all people? Because Jesus guarantees that the gospel will spread to all people groups. Here's the lie. My efforts don't really spread the gospel globally. What good does my discipling do? PJ, there's not really a lot of fruit from my discipling. It's doing nothing to spread the gospel globally. That's a lie. Here's the truth. Matthew 24, 14. Turn to Matthew 24, 14. What's the truth? The truth is, Jesus said, this gospel, this good news, that's what gospel means. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all ethnic people groups. And then the end will come. Is the gospel going to spread to all ethnic people groups? Will people from every ethnic people group hear the gospel of the kingdom? Yes, all of them will. Praise God. Count on it. Bank on it. This is how there will be some from every tribe and people and language and nation. And we get to be part of it. It's not an issue of whether it's going to happen. It might happen. It might not happen. It will happen. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. In Matthew 16, 18, you are familiar with this. Jesus said... You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower. Will Jesus build his church, yes or no? Will he build it among all ethnic people groups, yes or no? Will the gospel go out to all ethnic people groups, yes or no? Yes, it will. Jesus will build his church. Hell cannot stop him. Satan cannot stop him. The world cannot stop him. Death cannot stop him. Persecution cannot stop him. Opposition and intimidation cannot stop him. Insults cannot stop him. The lies and lure of the world cannot stop him. False teachers cannot stop him. False churches cannot stop him. Secularism cannot stop him. Weak and disobedient Christians cannot stop him. Unhealthy and strained churches cannot stop him. He will build his church. Among all ethnic people groups, it's going to happen. He's going to do it. He cannot be stopped. He is preparing a place for his people. And that place includes a place for all ethnic people groups. So if you believe the lie, my efforts don't really spread the gospel. God, Christ can't build my church through, he can't build his church through me. He can't further the cause among ethnic people groups through me. That's, that's wrong. That's, that's a lie. That's false. That's satanic. He will build his church. Through you. Matthew 13, 23. You know the parable of the soils. Matthew 13, 23. I'm just going to read the last verse here of, of the parable, of the interpretation of the parable. Matthew 13, 23. So you know some are, there's four bad, three bad soils. The one where the birds take it out, Satan takes it out. There's the rocky soil because they can't handle trials. There's the thorny uh, plant soil, they can't handle the, the, the lies of the world and the pleasures of the world. Then there's the good soil, the real Christians, right? And what happens to them? 1323 says, the one the, the seed of the gospel sown on good ground, this one, this is the person, this is you if you're a Christian, the one who hears and understands the word and who does produce fruit that yields what? How much fruit? Some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown? What's the least? 30 times. That's the least. In other words, every Christian is going to be abundantly fruitful. You know why? Because you don't have to become the light. Jesus what? He makes you the light. He makes you fruitful. He builds his church. He saves you and makes you a member of a church to build his church. That's what he does. I know you're going to be fruitful. because It's not because I know you. It's because I know the one who lives in you. And who saved you. And who's accompanying you. The truth is, you are not God. And you don't have a clue what your efforts do. 
You don't even know what you're doing. You don't know the, the, the consequences of your actions. You don't have a clue what kind of fruit your life is bearing. And you know what? You're not supposed to have a clue. God doesn't reveal to you how fruitful you're going to be. You just trust and follow him, follow Christ, and he's going to make you fruitful. He makes seeds grow. He makes plants grow. He makes plants become fruitful. He makes plants perpetuate more plants that are more fruitful. The truth is, your life, if you're a Christian, will be abundantly fruitful. I mean, think about Jim Elliot's life. How many did he convert? You know how many? He went to the Kua, right? He went to the people. How many did he convert? Zero. Is that a fruitless life? What happened? They got saved, right? We're, 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 some of his fruit is coming right now because you're hearing his story. Is that a fruitless life? So to not pull out your gun and defend yourself? Because you, you think you know how you're going to invest for the kingdom? And you know the best way for you to have a fruitful life? You don't know how you're going to be fruitful. You don't have a clue. You don't need to. Your life will be abundantly fruitful. So even as I look at you, I feel an immense honor and privilege that I get to be a fellow member with you. Because I'm looking at all these fruitful people. And we don't know what's going to happen on the other side when we see the results of all we've done. Let's go to number six. Six three ten. Six reasons why you need to go and disciple all ethnic people groups. Because Jesus only gives you rest in him. This world is a wearying place. There's only one place to find true rest. And that's in him. So the lie is, man, this discipling life is too hard. It's too tiring. I'm going to burn myself out and ruin my relationships. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, look at Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Notice that you'll find rest. Are you the one who produces the rest? So if you need rest and you're weary, you do need rest. Do you need to figure out how to, do you need to make yourself rest? Here, Jesus is saying, he's the one who gives rest. Rest is not something you work for or earn. Rest is something given to you by God. You just come to Jesus. You lean on Jesus. He calls us to rest. You know why Jesus gives us rest? Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And you know, Jesus didn't stop serving us after he died. He still serves you. He's still the same great, humble, majestic God-man and king. He still serves you. Christ gives you rest. Christ gives you strength. Christ gives you refreshment. Christ serves you. And let's go, if I can, let me see if we can just do this in our last few minutes here. Let's go back to the, the, the source of this whole thing, this whole mission enterprise. Go to Matthew 3. The last kind of major thought here. Matthew 3. You know this, Jesus was baptized. But I, want you to, I just want you to focus on one thing here. It's verse 17. Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. I just want you to focus on two words here. Beloved son. The son is loved. By who? The father. When has the father loved the son? From eternity. When did he begin loving the son? There is no beginning. He's always loved the son. How much has he loved the son? Infinitely. Father and son loving each other 
The father, what, what is, um, who is God? God is the Father, loving and giving life to His Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is a personal communion of love. He's a tri-personal communion of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father in the power and person of the Holy Spirit. And as Father and Son love each other, in the overflow of that love, not in the neediness of their love, they create a world. The Father loves the Son so much, He wants the Son to have a bride from every ethnic people group who get to live in a home so that husband and wife can be married and live happily ever after. The Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit overflows into creating a world. And then it overflows from that into creating a people and making disciples. And then he takes that Trinitarian love and he pours it into each of your hearts. And he pours it into our church's heart. And he puts it so much in us, so much love, so much peace, so much safety, so much joy, Trinitarian joy in us, Trinitarian love in us, that we overflow and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And we love the lost. So that we have the heart of Christ. Matthew 9, 35-38. Jesus sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. What does Jesus have for them? Compassion. Love. Overflowing love. And then when he saves you, you know what he gives you? Overflowing love. That makes you so filled with love. That going to disciple all nations is not finally a duty. <clears throat> It's a privilege. It's not finally an obligation. It's a joy. It's not something that's required. It's, it's compelled from the inside. I can't not go. I can't not disciple. His love is too much. I can't, I can't hold it in. I, I need to share it. I need to share seeing other people rejoice in Jesus. I need to see lost people get saved. I need to see people who don't have the, the gospel in their people group have the gospel in their people group. I need that. I can't hold it in. His love, Father's love for the Son, Son's love for the Father, love for us and the Spirit, it's too much. We can't hold it in. That's the only place we get rest. Our only rest is in Christ and His love. And part of that rest is sharing it. Like, we, we just are not, we, we don't feel at peace keeping it in. So the truth is God's love and Christ's burden and yoke are not to burden you, but to bless you. Not to burn you out, but to make you a blessing outward to others. John Patton, missionary, I already mentioned him earlier. Let me give you another quote of his. John Patton said this. Life, any life, would be well spent under any conceivable conditions in bringing one human soul to know and love and serve God and his son. And thereby securing for yourself at least one temple where your name and memory would be held forever and ever in affectionate praise. A regenerate heart. In heaven, that fame will prove immortal. When all the poems and pyramids of earth have gone to dust. All the earthly acc accolades, all your accomplishments, all the things you want to do in this life, all gone. And all you have left are people that you've led to Christ. Or a whole tribe. A whole language group who you with your church family worked to open up the gospel door so that that language group, which right now today in 2023, no one's a Christian in their language group. But because of what we're saying here and what the Spirit's doing here, we become part of the team of Christians that open a door to a whole new language group. What a life, a life well spent. I'm going to close in prayer. And um, 
I think what we're going to do is I'm going to ask a few different people to stand. But to finish off this time of the word, we're actually going to sing to each other. So I'm going to ask the song team to come back up. We're going to sing page 11, Facing the Task Unfinished. And then I'm going to finish my sermon. Which I'm not, not that I'm going to preach more, but then I'm going to do this altar. Like I'm going to have some of you stand and come up. And then we're going to close in prayer that way. So this is not quite the closing prayer of the sermon. We're going to sing first. So let's stand together. The task is unfinished. There are 6,000 unreached people groups and 3,000 unengaged among the 6,000 people groups. And we face this unfinished task together. Let's sing to one another this truth and challenge one another. And then you'll be seated and I'll give more instructions.